0: If you don't have a Bible, we have about six or seven, and the lovely Alvin Waltrip is going to um, uh, going to scarily walk around with his beard. And look at. It. As long as he smiles, um, raise your hand if you need a Bible. Share. You're going to need one today. Um, if you don't have one, it's no, no harm or foul, no shame, um, but you're going to need one because today's going to be pretty intense. Teaching, if you're here for the first time, you're not getting a traditional sermon, we're giving a teaching today. Um, and then we're going to give a teaching next week, and then we'll get back to things that are, resemble more like sermons the week after. And, and I don't know, today may resemble a bit of a sermon, but, um, I'm going to try to teach. So, we'll do it, Robin. Um, all right, and Robin, I'm counting on you this morning. We're going to have a, we're going to have a few places where you need to pipe in. Shirley handles me first service, you've got to handle it second. All right, so here's the deal. The typical evangelical gospel presentation. You ready? All of us are sinners. And it takes only one one sin to make us unacceptable to God. And there's hell to pay. Literally. God can't simply forgive us of our mistakes. He has to have a victim in order to forgive. Blood has to be shed. A blood sacrifice. And so he sends us his own son to die for us and to appease his otherwise unappeasable wrath. The wrath of God is satisfied. That's what we see. God has to save us from himself because he's going to condemn us all because of our sin. Typical evangelical approach, whether we have heard that or thought about it or not. That's generally what we say. The gospel is about your individual salvation and forgiveness of sins. That's the way we pitch it. Which then puts you and me, not us and not we, but you and me at the center of God's whole story. And we say things like, well, if you were the only person on planet Earth, Jesus Christ would have died for you. And we entertain statements that the Bible isn't even remotely close to entertaining. And God really can't forgive me for a mistake unless someone else dies. So we cite Old Testament for this. And with all that's wrong with the world, disease and war and hunger and slavery, we say that God is obsessed with the person the unmarried person sleeps with. God is obsessed with our individual sin despite all the world problems we see. A lot of world problems. But because we make the gospel about the individual's forgiveness of sin, the watching world wonders, then where in the world is your God in the midst of slavery and hunger and human trafficking? Sure, he's interested in saving me from my foul mouth or my sexual immorality. What about hunger? We have developed a narrow anemic gospel. Because our starting place in this evangelistic approach is making the center of the problem an individual sin. That's the center of the problem. The problem with the world is your sin. And so that's the starting place. So everything flows from that premise. And as a result, we isolate the hearer in his or her sin, warning them of the great dangers to them personally, the reality of them dying without Jesus as Lord and Savior and spending eternity in hell. And that becomes the deal. And we've done it this way, particularly in North America, American church, for about 150 years, and we wonder why America is becoming the least Christian place on the planet. Because we have an anemic gospel. But what if we started with this story? Let me give you a different version. A story that doesn't begin with the individual as the issue. Here's how I would say it. We live in a world that is completely screwed up. Sex trafficking, poverty, disease, environmental disasters, humanity has really messed up the world. We've just messed it up. And, and being a really good person isn't the answer. We're both, we're all, you know, really good people and, you know, in in and of itself. And and I know a lot of good people who are trying to fix the world, not in the name of Jesus, but they're giving out money and money and money to cure AIDS problems and human trafficking issues, and they're not doing it in the name of Jesus. They're good people bringing about some problems, some solutions to some problems in the world, but that ultimately isn't really going to cut it. Even science, which makes our lives much better, threatens to destroy the world, to wipe us off the face of the planet. And my question is, where is God in all this? Where is God in all the sex trafficking, poverty, disease, and environmental disasters, and brokenness, and betrayals, and divorces, and and death? Where, Where is God in all this? Well, the Christian story says that God has revealed His power in a story of selfless love, which is the opposite, actually, of what the Bible calls sin. And it identifies, this power of selfless love identifies sin as the root of the whole mess. God's solution to the problem is not power as control over the contingencies with life. Rather, the Christian view is that the world is made by God and that in the world... God suffers with us and joins us and endures with us and works to make right all that has been made wrong through paths of faithful love. Love that is not an emotion, but love that compels people to act and a love that compels Him to act because He made this good world. And ultimately, this is the power through which all things will be made whole. The God who made it will make it right through self-giving love. And we see the death of Jesus on a Roman cross as a demonstration that there is no power or circumstance that places us outside of God's love. And his resurrection from the dead, this Jesus says to us, the power of sin and death doesn't have the final word. And then the church is birthed from this self-giving love of a God who dies on a cross and is resurrected the third day. This church is birthed and it's a group of people who live by the power of this self-giving love which the Holy Spirit stirs up within us. And as a result, we live in resistance to, in resistance to all other powers that would shape life in distorting or unjust ways. We, the church, live as a sign of God's future that all things will be made whole. Because we are a community where things that are broken are made right. And that takes more than just good people or more people. Christians hardly have goodness cornered in the world. What it takes is a people who share a commitment to this way of being in the world. To being in the world as self-giving love people. And when you live this way with others you learn to recognize the unmistakable ways that God shows up among us. Like those moments of power when we learn to forgive each other the way God lavishly forgives us. We become a sign to the world that God hasn't left us. And when I live in this story, this story I just gave of a grand gospel, That is so big, it even forgives my sins. But bigger than that, that it's restoring the world. That it's making right all that has been made wrong in the world. When I live in this story, I find myself being transformed by the love of God. The way this world gets on you and in me and in you and contaminates you and contaminates me and weighs you down and weighs me down with the shame and the guilt and the condemnation is ultimately defeated by this God. And this transformed way of life survives everything even death. Why are we scared of that gospel? Why are we scared of a gospel that's big enough to share with the world while it, why it's in such a mess? But bigger than the myopic, anemic view that says Jesus Christ died to save sinners. He did more than that. He did more than that. It involves all that, but it's more than that. A reading of the gospel must begin in Genesis 1, not Genesis 3. Did you know that in Genesis 3 in the fall that sin is not even mentioned? Did you notice that? The word sin is not even used until Cain and Abel. You know why? Because Adam and Eve's principal issue wasn't that they sinned against God. It's that they usurped God's authority. Now, that's sin, but they took what wasn't theirs. They thought they had a better way of life than God, so they took the one thing that he said not to take. Now, that's sin, but it's bigger than just your sexual immorality. It's bigger than just my tendency to hate my brother. When Cain was going to hate on Abel, God said sin is crouching around your door. see because the issue wasn't merely and isn't merely that man and woman needs our sins forgiven it's so that god can make right in all of creation what he began in genesis 1 that we messed up that's why the book ends of the bible's genesis 1 and revelation 22 it looks the same but it's very different and in the middle is jesus and in the beginning and in the end is jesus See, last week I suggested that Jesus' baptism is a model for our own. We're baptized for the same reasons he was, but oftentimes not quite the same reasons we think John's baptism exists. So if you missed last week, I'm, going to, I'm not going to spend a lot of time qualifying today, so you're going to have to catch the podcast from last week. Because we got to, we got a lot to cover in a little time. But I want to read Luke and Matthew's account today of Jesus' baptism. Luke three twenty one. When all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized as he was praying heaven opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in a physical appearance like a dove and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, I take the light in you. And we talked about how Jesus' baptism is the inauguration of his ministry. More specifically, Jesus was baptized to demonstrate his solidarity with the coming kingdom of God. Not only that, but Jesus' baptism was a demonstration of the nature of that coming kingdom. That's what we're going to spend time talking about this morning. And what is beautiful about Jesus' baptism is not only his solidarity with the coming kingdom of God, but the Father's solidarity with him and the Father's pronouncement, this is my beloved Son, I take delight in you. Before Jesus ever performed a miracle or a good deed or a good work in the name of Yahweh, God, the Father, looked at him and said, you're my kid and I love you. And what God said to Jesus, God says to us in our baptism. But more than that, is Matthew's account of Jesus' baptism and Jesus' reason for his baptism. See, John's baptism was called a baptism of repentance, a baptism for the forgiveness of sins. But Jesus did not need his sins forgiven. He had nothing to repent from in the way we talk about repentance. When you tell your friends to repent, it usually has to do with turning away from sin to obedience to God. And unfortunately, what our anemic gospel has done is made repentance very anemic too. See, because look what Jesus says. And Jesus answered in verse 15, Allow it for now, because this is the way for us to fulfill all, say it, righteousness. What does that mean, Jesus? I'm about to show a solidarity with the kingdom that is coming in. And in Jesus' ministry, he taught people, this is what it looks like to live in allegiance with God's kingdom. You can go in allegiance to Israel if you'd like, with all your political rules under the guard and the tyranny of Rome, but you you can do that, but that's not the way. Turn from that allegiance to that kingdom, repent, into the kingdom of God. See, here's my case. My whole case here hinges upon how you answer this question, you and I. How you answer the question of what you think the Bible is most concerned with. What is the question the entire Bible, what question is the entire Bible most concerned with? And most evangelical Christians will say, well, how sinful humanity can receive forgiveness of sins. How you can get your sins forgiven. And we effectively start at Genesis 1, we work through it really quickly, and land at Genesis 3 and talk a lot about the fall. We talk about how man's been it up ever since. And then we come up with the gospel and say then, if you die tonight, where would you go, heaven or hell? And if you say hell, would well, Jesus die to save you from your sin? If you repent and turn from your old ways and turn to him, then you can live with him life everlasting. And that's how we got the church and the mess that she is in where we don't make disciples and live on mission with God and why you and I have gone to churches that judge and that do nothing with the world and that, that bite, backbite each other and divide and split and don't love the least and the last and the left out and turn away the divorcee and turn away the man or the woman because they have a different skin color. And then we look around in 2014 and we go, well, where'd the church go? Well, because that was our gospel, is your sins could be forgiven. And if you were the only person on planet Earth, Jesus would have died for you. And that's a hypothetical that God's not even concerned with, because that's just not, like literally, theologically, hypothetically, possibly true. It's not, there's no way it's there. It's, just, it's not real. I think the central question, my position is the central question is not how can sinful humanity receive forgiveness of sins, but how can God work in history to bring all things back under his sovereign love and care? I think that's the central question. And I think if you read Genesis 1, you'll see it. But we don't have time to do that. So I'm going to try and give it in two weeks what I think established this very clear, very, very clearly, without me trying, that's going to require us to start at Romans 1 and end at Romans 15 today. Yeah, right? You heard me right. Fifteen chapters. We'll skip about ten of them. But we'll catch the threads. See, because question one that deals with forgiveness of sins, question one, the issue in the first is the individual. What's primal in the question number one is the individual. If the Bible is concerned with how one can get their sins forgiven, the central concern is you and me, the individual. Versus in question two, it's all of history. In question number one, if the issue is forgiveness of sins of the individual, then the object of salvation is the individual. But if question number two is actually the answer, which is how can God bring the whole world back under his sovereign love and care, then the concern is all of creation. That starts to make sense of things like God is making all things new statements. Doesn't it? Revelation 22, new heavens and new earth kind of stuff. Question number one, if your issue is, if the, if the question is forgiveness of individual sin, then Israel's story is unessential, which is why we have New Testament Christians who don't know the Bible. We don't know the Old Testament. Because Israel's story is just old law, and we talked about that in Galatians 3 as we did an exposition of that text. Paul had a high view of the Old Law and it's woven in throughout all of the New Testament, but we got people who don't even know the Old Law and can't catch the reference of the Old Law in the New Testament. So the Bible, we could just rip out the first half and just call ourselves New Testament Christians. I come from a tradition, Dave, didn't we, that talked about we're New Testament Christians, which meant we knew very little about the old, right? So Israel's story is really unessential. But if question number two, how can God work in history and bring the entire world under his love and care, his sovereign love and care, then the story of Israel is essential. And as a matter of fact, it's more than essential. The gospel hinges upon that story. So when Jesus says, I'm baptized to fulfill all righteousness, that's where it comes from. What all righteousness? All righteousness that God has been speaking about since Genesis 1 that man blew up when man thought he knew better than god and usurped god's authority and took what wasn't theirs and it hinges on and here's the important part and we saw this in galatians 3 didn't we it hinges on the outcome of the promise made to whom abraham that was Paul's point. We're saved by grace to faith because of a promise made through Abraham. That's his point. That's what he made. It's just the salvific, the salvation piece of that. The person who lives into that, embodies that, and makes all of that possible and real is Jesus Christ, who is the seed of who? Oh. Crickets. Trip it. Trip Abraham. It's the seed of Abraham. That was Galatians 3. So. The reason why we often develop a myopic, anemic gospel is because we start with the premise of the Bible. We look at the Bible through the lens of the principal question God is concerned about in the Bible. The principal thing he's doing in the Bible is saving humanity from their sins. And that is, is—and you ready? That is false. It's bigger than that. See, these two questions, they're not unrelated. And I want to say that again. The two questions I, position, I posit to you are not unrelated. I want to say that again. The two questions are not unrelated. But it start it matters where you begin. If you start with question number 2, you get question number 1 answered. If you start with question number 1, you don't get question number 2 addressed. You with me? If you start with God, how can God bring all the world under his sovereign love and care and make all things right that has been made wrong, you get forgiveness of sins. Cuz sins the root problem. But if you start with question number one, then you don't see all the other injustices of the world so much and you don't care so much about the planet and you don't see the new heavens and new earth and you don't care about all the big picture issues and so you have Christians and where I was come from and in a certain part of our country who had a problem with us talking about AIDS orphans in Africa. Because what's that got to do with me? You see it Everywhere. And you see then how Christians can do atrocious things in the name of God to humanity. Because they start with question number one. It's all spiritualized. And there's no physical and real implications to how we live our lives. And so we walk by the poor, we walk by the disabled, we walk by the abandoned, and we go on despite everything, everything that Jesus said, we just move right on. And instead of addressing someone's real life issues, we just want to make sure we get them in the water so they get to heaven. And we send them to about eight Bible classes we call Discipleship 101 classes and think they're going to live passionately for Jesus. And then we ask them two or three years from now, how many people did you share the gospel with? Never mind the fact. that they're looking at death and disease and hunger and poverty and slavery and all the issues in the world and they're wondering, where is God? So you know why the world doesn't know God? It's because we haven't given them the robust, beautiful, massive gospel. So, if I were to divide the Bible... I would consider dividing it pre-exile and post-exile. What I mean by that is there's a period in the life of Israel's history where Israel had it all together, the temple was established, worship was going on, all things were well, and they were trying to live into the shalom of God, but because of their rebellion against God and their idolatry with God, God exiled them and they got scattered all throughout the world all throughout the world. So really, my, my bookend of the Bible would be Genesis the Lamentation where there's weeping and there's all that, that mourning because everything has been destroyed and then Isaiah comes in and starts speaking words of hope. And Isaiah is the one that has what we call the messianic prophecies. Rich, 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 rich in messianic prophecies that speak of Jesus, beginning at Isaiah 40, verse 1, where Isaiah says, Comfort, O oh comfort my people. And he begins to talk about a new hope where God is going to restore Israel and make all things new again and right all the things that have been made wrong And forgiveness of sins for Israel meant more than just having their individual sins forgiven. And you want to know why? Because their individual sins forgiveness was already taken care of through the law. So that wasn't a question they were asking. They weren't asking, hey, Yahweh, how can I get my sins forgiven? What they were asking was, Yahweh, how can Israel be made restored again? How can Israel be redeemed again? How can Israel find consolation again? When are you going to come, Yahweh? You see it in David, King David in the Psalms. You see it in the prophets and the kings where they often ask, God, have you forgotten the promises you made to Abraham? Have you forgotten your promises to redeem all of creation? Is Israel's sin so great that there's no hope for a future with you, Yahweh? Or worse, is Yahweh not sovereign over all of history and therefore incapable of bringing his purposes about? You see those questions asked throughout the Old Testament in abundance and you see it repeated in in Simeon and Anna in the opening of Luke's gospel. My point is, these questions that God's people have been asking since exile are the same questions they were asking when Jesus hit the scene. Look at Simeon's language look at the way it describes. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation. They were still wondering, when is Yahweh going to fulfill his covenant promise? When's he going to restore it all? Because our temple isn't restored completely. Our people are still scattered and we're under the tyranny of Rome. When will Yahweh console us with this Messiah that Prophet Isaiah spoke of. That was Simeon's concern. You see it right there in his language. But you also see it in Anna. In the prophetess Anna. Whose same concern. Bert, if you got the next slide. At the very moment when Jesus came up, she came up and began to thank God and to speak about Jesus, who was the Messiah to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. This is much more than to all who were looking forward to their individual sins being forgiven. It's bigger than that. See, they, like many of Israel's theologians before them, imagined that God's purpose for Israel existed not in an ideal past to be restored, but in a perfect future to be brought about, whose existence would break into the present in sudden and surprising ways through this Messiah, which is why Jesus came and said, Hey, repent, for the kingdom of God has come what? Near. God has broken into this moment. in a way that fulfills the promise he made to Abraham. See, the future age that Israel was longing for would bring a renewing of Israel according to the promises of God. And listen to this, and forgiveness of sins would be a sign. Forgiveness of sins would be a sign that the new age has come and that the exile has finally ended when no longer did they have to offer sacrifices to God, but there was one sacrifice for all, that was the sign that the new age had come. When the Messiah had come and been the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb of God, that was the sign that the new age had come. That was the sign that they now knew that God was doing something new in the world again. Jesus says, look, I'm making all things new. All right, are you with me so far? Are you with me? Okay, that's my introduction. I'm partly kidding and not. We need to remember that at the time of Jesus' baptism, church, provision was already made for the forgiveness of individual sins. Because we're talking about Jesus' baptism. Still, we're going to talk about ours. So when Jesus said to fulfill our righteousness, it was bigger than that. As long as Israel remained under the rule of pagans and as long as Torah was not observed perfectly and as long as the temple was not properly restored, Israel would long for forgiveness of sins as the great messianic and national blessing promised by God. And in light of this, this is where we find Matthew and Luke's demonstration and even Mark's, uh, or should I say, account of Jesus's Baptism. And so, getting back to our original questions, those who received John's baptism, were they more concerned with individual forgiveness of sins or answering the question of what must I do to be saved? Or were they more concerned with how God can work in history to bring creation back under His sovereign care? I say question number two. Because question number one doesn't make sense within the law anyway. Provision was already made. And what Jesus was saying when He came and said, The kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe. What Jesus was essentially saying is he was saying, give up your way of being Israel. Give up your way of living according to your own government that hasn't worked for you in history and turn to the way God is working in the world. That's where repentance comes in. Repentance means turn away from one allegiance to another allegiance. It has to do with allegiances. It has to do with what is sovereign in my life. You with me? Repentance has to do with allegiances, say it. Repentance has to do with allegiances. Who is sovereign in your life? You are Jesus. And that's the question that has to be answered. That's bigger than sin. (laughs) That's much bigger than just your sin. That's actually the cancer to your sin. It's an issue of allegiance. An issue who I'm living for. And baptism demonstrates the shape of that repentance in light of the kingdom. So, now let's go to Romans chapter 6. And before you get to 6, go to 1. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Romans 1. All right, you ready? The kids are ready. Romans chapter 1. Listen to the language, please. Follow with me. Listen to the language. Paul A slave of Christ Jesus called as an apostle and singled out for God's gospel, good news, which he, what, listen, which he promised long ago through who? His prophets and what? The Holy Scriptures. What scriptures is he talking about? The Old Testament. Concerning his son, because they spoke of Jesus, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was a descendant of whom? David, according to the flesh and who has been declared the powerful Son of God by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness. We have received grace and apostleship through him to bring about obedience to the faith among how many nations? All nations. On behalf of his name, including yourselves, you Roman Gentiles, who also belong to Jesus Christ, by calling. In other words, Paul goes up and he makes no apologies and says, Look, this salvation thing was promised way back to the Old Testament people, to Jews, back to the seed of Abraham, through the throne of David, because he's a king. This king, Jesus is king, Caesar is not. That's why he uses the Davidic announcement. Jesus is king, Caesar's not. But because he's the king, listen please, because Jesus is the king from the throne of David as testified in the Old Testament scriptures, because of what the scriptures say about that king, he is therefore Lord of the universe, because scriptures say that that king's kingdom will never end. So through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who's that king, you can be a part of a kingdom that never ends, where you find life and hope and salvation and forgiveness of sin. And Paul says in Romans chapter 1 beginning verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is God's power for salvation. Salvation has much more to do than just you and I getting to heaven church. It's bigger than that. Salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. And listen, here we go. For in it the gospel, God's what? Righteousness is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. What did Jesus say? I must be baptized to fulfill all what? And so in the gospel, God's what is fulfilled? See, Jesus' baptism is to show a solidarity of the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God has come and all things are beginning to be made new again. And through his death and resurrection, because he won't stay dead, he will release us from the tyranny of sin and the rain and the kingdoms of darkness into the kingdom of light. Paul makes that point in Romans. See, here's our problem with Romans. Romans has often been read as a text that explains principally how an individual sinner has sins forgiven. Romans is the great justification by faith text. And we assume wrongly thanks to Reformed theology or Luther specifically, that somehow Romans has primarily and principally and singularly to do with the individual's justification, meaning that the individual is forgiven of their sins. And I believe that misreads Romans beginning in Romans 1 because he doesn't talk about that. He talks about a kingdom that has come through the line of David, and that fulfills the righteousness of God. And so we think in our old readings of Romans that the climax of Romans is Romans 5, where God gets down and dirty in the idea of now all has been saved and all people can be forgiven. And we talk about grace, and we talk about sin, and you need to hold that slide for a minute. I'll, I'll explain that slide in a moment. But I don't believe Romans 5 is the climax of Romans. I believe Romans' climax is not Romans 5 and not even Romans 8. And by the way, the reason why baptism is an afterthought in most of Protestant theology, not all but in some, is because Romans 5 is the climax and Romans 6 is kind of a byproduct. We get through Romans 7 with what little bit we understand, the Holy Spirit. We don't get him very much, so we blow through Romans 8. And then Romans 9 through 11 comes, and that confuses us because of our theology. And then we can't wait to get to Romans 12 because now we talk about something practical. And I think the highlight, the climax of Romans, is actually Romans 9 through 11, and this is why. I get that from Paul, I think. Look at Paul in Romans 11. Look at how he ends this long you think I'm going long, this long theological discourse in Romans 1 through 11. Listen to how he ends it. It's like Paul can't help but bust out in a song. At least I don't do that. Romans 11 verse 33, He's like, "Oh, the depths of the riches both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable is judgments and untraceable is ways for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has ever first given to him and has to be repaid from, for him and from him and through him and to him all, all, are all things to him be the glory forever. And the congregation said in the text, Amen. And then Paul doesn't stop. He goes, And therefore, that's what it says in Romans 12, Therefore, because all that, Therefore, I urge you, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. Don't be, listen, don't be conformed to this age. The age he's talking about is the old age that is passing away. Don't be conformed to the old age, this age, this age that's passing away. Don't be conformed to that age, the age where categories and divisions and fragmentation exist, the age where we abandon the last and the least, the age where violence becomes the exertion of power, not self-giving love. Don't, don't conform to that age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good pleasing and perfect will of God. Don't live that way. That's the old way. Because of everything I've said in Romans 1 through 11, live this way. That's right. That's right. And he says then, and he goes on, and after going through some more dissertation, look at what he says in Romans 15. Beginning verse 7, he says, and therefore, since you're living this way now because of that gospel, listen, church, this is important, Romans 15, verse 7, therefore, welcome one another, you Gentile Jewish mixed churches, welcome one another, just as the Messiah also welcomed you. You see that? He roots it right back in the gospel. Gracious hospitality is rooted in the gospel. It's central to the gospel. It is God making room for us in his life. And he says, because you're my people, make room for one another in your lives. Welcome one another, just as Christ welcomed you. You can't say that person's not welcome. Christ welcomed you. You welcome them. Welcome one another. But he hangs this. He says, he gets theological. He doesn't just be topical. He says, for I say that the Messiah became a servant of the circumcised. Who are the circumcised? The Jews, on behalf of God's truth, or another way of saying that is righteousness. To confirm the promises to the fathers. And so that Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. He hangs it on and he says, look, this gospel is much bigger than just you getting your individual sins forgiven. This gospel changes how you do life in the world. The faithfulness to the promises made to Israel and the inclusion of the Gentiles is for Paul a picture of the kingdom of God, which is why Paul in Romans 15 says the kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking. It's about peace and power. Paul doesn't mention their forgiveness of sins the way we normally talk about it. And in Romans chapter 6, The Great Baptism text, he does not mention forgiveness of sins at all anywhere in that text. And I think here's why because of Romans 5. So now go back to Romans 5. Are you sort of with me? Because Paul talks about sin very differently than the way we talk about sin. When we talk about sin, we talk about behavior. And when we talk about repentance, we talk about behavioral modification. Modify your behavior and you'll be okay. Paul never talked about sin that way. He did not. He talked about certain lifestyles that come as a result of sin, but he talked about sin in a much bigger view. He has a higher view of sin than we do. Which consequently means Paul has a higher view of the kingdom of God and the gospel than many times we do. Because if you have a high view of sin, it's going to take a high view of something to overdo it. Listen to what he said about sin. Romans 5, beginning verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. Sin and death are companions. You don't get one without the other. Death is sin's lynch mob. In this way, death spread to all men because all sinned. In fact, sin was in the world before the law, but sin is not charged to a person's account when there is no law. Nevertheless, listen to this. Death, what's the word? Reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgressions. Okay, so here's the thing. The problem with the world isn't that people sin. The problem with the world is that sin and death is reigning. Under the dominion of the brokenness of this world, you know why the world is so broken? You know why there's hunger and sickness and disease and poverty and slavery and racism and all the other isms? It isn't because merely Alvin's sins, and it isn't because of Fred's sin, it's because the world has fallen under the reign of sin and death. We are not trapped because of our individual sin. We're trapped because of the world's reign falling under the reign and rule of sin to which we are enslaved and trapped. You with me? It's a very subtle but very big difference. We can't get out of our sin problem because we live under the reign of sin and death outside of Jesus. This ain't about you getting it right before God. This is about you can't climb out of the problem. The problem is bigger than you and me. That's why the whole world is under judgment. It's a bigger view. And so death reigns. Death reigns and sin reigns without Jesus. And without Jesus, death has the final word. Doesn't it? Without Jesus, death has the final word. But with Jesus, death doesn't have the final word. But you've got to read the text. I've got to read the text. Here's what it says, verse eight, fifteen. But the gift is not like the trespass, for if by one's trespass the many died, how much more have the grace of God and the gift overflowed to the many by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ? And the gift is not like the one man's sin, but because one sin came the judgment resulting in condemnation, but from many trespasses came the gift resulting in justification, since by the one man's trespass, death reigned Through that one man. This is where I need to get an amen. How much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness. What's the word? Reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ. So what do we learn? Is that the reign of God trumps the reign of sin. And the reign of God is made known through Jesus Christ. And salvation doesn't just mean you merely get your sins forgiven. It means you change kingdoms. You move from the kingdom of darkness and sin to the kingdom of light. And when you live in the kingdom of light, you cannot turn your back on the brokenness of the kingdoms of darkness. And that is the point. Because we live in a kingdom where grace reigns. Where grace rules. Not where sin and death rules. That's Paul's language. And so, Paul, fittingly, says in verse 20, The law came along to multiply the trespass, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will what? Reign through what? And Jesus' baptism fulfilled what? Righteousness. And the gospel of Jesus' life fulfilled all what? What? Righteousness. And so in Christ, we are given the righteousness of God. Therefore, in Christ, through faith in him, we are translated from the kingdom of sin and death into the kingdom of grace where righteousness rules. And we have been made a part of that through grace and by grace through faith. And that's it. That changes everything. But here's what he does. He doesn't stop there. He says, so what should we say then? Chapter six, verse one. Should we then continue in sin so that grace may multiply? No. Matter of fact, if Paul, th- 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 absolutely not in the Greek are not church words. Paul, at the, let me check that Make sure we ain't got any people to justify something. Paul says an expli- expletive. Is that the word? Expletive. When he says absolutely not, he is emphatic. He's emphatic because of everything he's been saying. He's like, so how would you, how, why would you live where sin and death is ruling? When you have Jesus. Why would you even go back to that? It's Paul's point. And here's his point. Because don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ. Were baptized into his death. And when we were buried with Christ in baptism into death. We were raised to walk a new life. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. So we too may walk in a new way of life. For if we've been joined with him in the likeness of his death. We will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him. In order that sins What? dominion over the body may be may be abolished. The word dominion is literally kingdom. It's basilica in the Greek. When Jesus says the kingdom of God, it's basilica in the Greek. Paul uses the same words. It's the kingdom of sin and the kingdom of God. He's making a contrast. And this contrast is your entrance through your baptism may be abolished so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin since a person who has died is freed from sin's claims. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we'll also live with him because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him, for in light of the fact that he died, he died to sin once for all, but in light of the fact that he lives, he lives to God. So, you too consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its desires, and do not offer any parts of it to sin as weapons of unrighteousness, but as those who are alive from the dead. Offer yourselves to God, and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons. For righteousness, for sin will not rule over you because you're not under law, but you're under the reign and the rule and the dominion of grace. God's grace changes everything. Romans 6, the issue of Romans 6 isn't how does one get their sins forgiven. The issue of Romans is not. The issue is simply this. Which kingdom are you allegiant to? You're going to be allegiant to the kingdom? that is the kingdom of sin and death, where you allow it to reign in your body and you just offer your lives as a weapon of unrighteousness so you contribute to the injustices of this world? You pass by it in defiance and indifference and in cynicism and apathy? Is that that where you want to live? He says, no. He says, or or do you want to live as though you belong to the kingdom of righteousness, the kingdom of God, where you offer your bodies as weapons for righteousness. People ask me, Fred, why Why do you lose sleep? Why are you so motivated for the last and the least? Why do you feel the burden you do for poverty and those issues like that? And here's the reason, because I know whose weapon I am. I'm a wep- my life is a weapon for righteousness. I am not allowed to sit by and just watch it happen. I'm in the kingdom of God. I don't have permission To say it's not my problem. Because I know what God is doing in the world. He's making it new again. And Jesus is king. He has torn down sin and death. And it's rule and it's tyranny over the world. And somebody's got to let him know man. Somebody's got to let him know. Somebody's got to let him know. That your life doesn't have to be this way. And every now and then, somebody's got to let another Christian know who's sick in their soul or sick in their body to say, look, I know you're sick. I know you're sick in your soul. I know you're sick in your body. But sin and death doesn't have a rule over you. It doesn't have a reign in your life. Your baptism says otherwise. Your baptism says you belong to the kingdom of God. And that was a gift to you. You just received it. You were secure in that place. So yeah, Romans 6 is about what kingdom you belong to. And in this new kingdom there's neither Jew or Greek or slave or free or male or female like Paul said in Galatians 3:28. We have a new humanity not given to the old distinctions of the age that's passing away but given to life imperishable, newness of life that will survive into the next age. And this acceptance of a new kingdom, that's what Jesus was baptized into by John solidarity with the kingdom of God and acceptance of the mission and the rule and the reign and the grace of God. And what we are baptized into, according to Romans 6, is we're baptized into an acceptance of the rule and the reign of God, an acceptance of oneness, a solidarity with the kingdom of God and the mission of God. When we are baptized, we are welcoming and representing the coming reign of God. We've turned our lives away from repentance, the allegiance to the reign of sin and death, which divides people according to human standards. And in instead. Instead, we've turned to the reign of grace of God which welcomes all people who knows what the world is coming to and what God is doing in the world and we join Him there. That that is the beautiful, robust, wonderful, life-changing, world-remaking gospel of the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ. And every one of us are invited into that. Every one of us. Let's live like it. Let's pray.